Now, we actually are in a, we're in a series, if you are a guest, in a series called The Glory of the One and Only, and we're preaching through the Gospel of John, and it is so fitting that we landed on this passage at this particular moment. I kind of wish Jeff was here. He's sorry that he can't be here. He just knows that he'd be so tempted to talk, and he, and he needs to rest and, and recover. And, um, but it's really interesting that in this time of trial, we land on this passage, and uh, at this point in the Gospel narrative... Uh, from an earthly perspective, Jesus' ministry is kind of floundering, right? He, uh, he's become more and more divisive. Uh, his numbers have deflated, and his disciples are becoming pretty disappointed in the way that he's, he's operating. You see, the, the disciples thought that they were going to ride this tide of, of favor that Jesus had all the way to the top of a freshly liberated Israel, But now they're starting to realize that things with Jesus don't work the way they work with everything else. You see, he's making these weird statements like, you must eat my body and drink my blood. And people are leaving him in droves. He he keeps ostracizing the religious and the social elites, the people who he should be ingratiating himself with. And it's putting them all in danger. They're all under, under threat of death. And he continues time after time to squander opportunities to capitalize on the momentum that he, that he has with the crowd. For example, in the passage before this, which uh, will be preached in, uh, or in, in chapter 12, which will be preached at uh, Palm Sunday, he's just come into the city to the cheers of the crowd, right? They, they are calling him the king. They're using the, the Jewish language of, of kingship. They are ready to revolt against this oppressive power of Rome. And what does Jesus do? Instead of delivering the Braveheart speech and rallying like, the, the passion of the crowd, he tells them that he's going away and then he hides himself from the public. Then comes the Passover, the time that the entire Jewish nation celebrates God liberating them from their oppressors. It's a perfect moment to spark a rebellion. And rather than taking a kingly place of honor and asking for the the undying allegiance of his crew in the coming revolution, Jesus dresses as a slave and washes their feet and tells them he's leaving and then says that one of them is is going to deny him and another one is going to betray him. This man who, who has them convinced that he is the long-awaited Messiah, maybe even God himself, now seems to be unraveling right before their eyes. And this is where we pick it up in, chapter, in John chapter 14. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You see, he's recognizing the fear that is gripping the spirit of the disciples. So he leads off his big teaching with, Do not let your heart be troubled. A command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. In the midst of all of this confusion, he tells them, 
not to be afraid even though he is going away, even though their plan is crumbling. Jesus commands them not to embrace the panic of the moment. And if we're honest, there are times in our lives, like I'm assuming Pastor Jeff is feeling right now, where we feel this type of panic too. It seems like the life that we have built or the dream that we have been chasing is starting to come apart at the seams. Maybe it's the loss of a job or a relationship. Maybe it's a child who is wandering in sin. Maybe internally it's a burning doubt that seems to be consuming our faith. The untimely death of a loved one, a paralyzed vocal cord, whatever it is, like the disciples, we have an assumption of how things should be for us And when it doesn't work out that way, it's confusing and it grips our hearts with fear. Fear that God is absent from our circumstances. Fear that we are outside of his care. Fear that he may not be who he claims to be. And this fear, this plague of fear isn't uniquely a Christian fear. We live in a world and particularly a society that is filled with confusion and persistent anxiety. People are constantly seeking to quell the rising panic in their own soul. They're constantly trying to lock down some peace and security, constantly trying to dig out the bad bad feelings and backfill it with happiness, constantly trying to find meaning and identity because it's an awareness of the absence of God. And be it conscious or subconscious, it is experienced internally as feelings of lack and isolation, and insufficiency, and meaninglessness, and it pervades all of humanity. And it's understandable, because as humans, our dwelling, our, the place that we, that we find our home was supposed to be with God. And when we look at the beginning of human existence, we see our design was to dwell in a place where we had unveiled access to God. We weren't searching for identity because we were, at, we were able to look at the one from whom we derive our identity. We weren't panicked about our security because we were at peace with all things in God's good creation and death wasn't even a thing for us. We weren't anxious for anything because the earth brought forth all good things to supply our need. And we weren't experiencing purposelessness because we had a standing order from our creation to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and go and exercise the benevolent reign of God across the earth. But through Adam and Eve's disobedience and disbelief, and subsequently through our own disobedience and disbelief, we experience decay and war and toil and infirmity and so much worry. Now, those things are all tragic in and of themselves, but they're just symptoms of the bigger tragedy, the horrible reality that we are cut off from God. Now, Jeff mentioned a few Sundays ago that we aren't cut off in the sense that God is no longer omnipresent or that his common grace isn't working in all of humanity. We are cut off in that we have been cut off from intimate fellowship with God that we have been cast out of the garden and that our spiritual faculties have been deadened to the awareness of God. 
So rather than shalom, this, this Hebrew word for this holistic peace that we were made to experience, what we experience is turmoil and anxiety and a feeling of absence. And this is an innate fear. This is built into us because I see it every day in my daughter Clementine. Kristen is Clementine's God. That's terrible to say. She's a wicked little idolater and, and, <laughs> and I promise we're going to make a repentance center of her. But no, but Kristen is her primary caretaker. She provides all, for all of Clementine's needs. She's her best friend. She's the burning center of Clementine's universe. Well, sorry, Clementine is the burning center of Clementine's universe, followed closely <laughs> by Kristen. And Clementine has come to a place where she can recognize when Kristen is getting ready to leave, but Clementine's not going with her. She sees mommy has her jacket on, but Clementine doesn't have her jacket on. Mommy has her shoes on, Clementine doesn't. Mommy has her purse, but not the diaper bag. And she starts to panic. She starts to get worried, she starts to get clingy. Doesn't matter that dad's still there. <laughs> Doesn't matter that she has clothes on her body and a roof over her head and food in her stomach. The center of her universe is, is starting to, to, to drift away from her and she is, it preys on a primal fear which is ultimately the fear of being without God. So the imminent departure of their miracle-working rabbi, the, the, the one who they have some idea is divine, is stirring up both an immediate anxiety and an ancient anxiety in the heart of the disciples. And in this case, that anxiety is well-founded. God is leaving them. Because in Christ, God has made his dwelling. God has made his home with us. Now clearly, the disciples are still a little unsure of exactly who Jesus is and how he relates to God. Guess what? So are we. If any of you in this room can explain the Trinity without drifting into some kind of formal heresy, I will give you 50 bucks. 20 bucks. So in response to, to Jesus' comforting claim that he's going to his father's house to prepare a place for them, that Jesus himself is making the way for them to follow, this is what we see. Lord, said Philip, show us the father and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me? The one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe, believe because of the works themselves. When Philip makes the request, show us the Father, he is saying, Remove the veil of separation. Restore us back to that place of intimate nearness with God. Just do that, and that will be enough for us. But Jesus responds by making a mind-bending claim. If you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. We are different persons, yet we are distinctly the same. Remember the prologue of this gospel, this spectacular poem from chapter one that lays out the, what this entire book is endeavoring to explain. 
In verse 14, it says, the word, the word that always existed, the word that was with God and that was God, the word through which all of creation, all created things were made, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he tabernacled, he made his home with us, and we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is affirming that he is this eternally existing word, the manifest revelation of God, of the invisible God. Jesus is affirming his deity, his oneness with God. And there's no other way that the Jews would have really heard this. When Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's making three claims to deity in one sentence. He says, I am. Ego a me. This is the Greekicized version. Is that a word, Ryan? Greekicized? Yeah. <laughs> Hellenized. There we go. This is the Hellenized version of the phrase, I am. When Moses asks, asks God, what should I say your name is? Say, I am that I am. Ego a me. I am the way. In reference to what Jeff, Jeff talks about, the halakha, the, the, the way of Torah, I, I am God's revealed word with all of the authoritative claims on humanity. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. The Proverbs tell us that the truth and the life are the outcomes of following the halakha. So Jesus is saying, I am. I am all of it. I am the means and I am the outcome. I am the beginning and I am the end. So when people attack the validity of Orthodox Christianity by saying that Jesus never claimed to be God, this passage stands in direct contradiction to that. Jesus even commands them to fearlessly believe in him. The command to fearless belief is reserved for God alone in the Old Testament. He is telling them, I am God standing here in the flesh, dwelling among you. I am the end of your separation. And this is the beauty of the gospel. When it was impossible for us to make an approach to God, God made the approach to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But wait. Jesus is getting ready to leave doesn't that mean that we're going to once again have to suffer the disgrace and the anxiety of being separated from God? Praise the Lord, no. Because as Christians, as believers, on this side of eternity, on this side of death, our dwelling is with God by the power of the Spirit. Look what he says, what Jesus says in, in verses 16 through 21. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because, he doesn't, because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. 
The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. Even though none of us in this room have ever seen Jesus, we have a blessed assurance of the truth of our faith, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our eternal inheritance, which is to be with the Lord forever. So think about what's happening here. God the Father, the unique first person of the Trinity, at the request and the authority of God the Son, the unique second person of the Trinity, sends us God the Holy Spirit, the unique third person of the Trinity, to be our counselor, our comforter, and our companion during the season of the now and not yet of the kingdom. And yes, there is a season in which we have to walk by faith and not by sight, and the Holy Spirit is the promise that our faith is true, and it is only going to be like this for a season. Because there is coming a time when Christ will come and all humanity will see him together and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas and his presence and his reign will be so undeniable that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that brings up a question. Why now are there so many people who proactively deny the existence of God? Why do intensely smart and curious people like Bertrand Russell and Richard Dawkins and my personal favorite, Christopher Hitchens, who I'm praying so hard is in heaven, how do they, how do they fail to comprehend God? And in this passage, the disciples ask the question this way. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So I hear this question, and my little nerd heart gets super excited, right? Because I'm expecting Jesus is going to come down with, like, a profound exposition of doctrine and science and, and all this great stuff, which will perfectly explain away the problem of what philosophy calls the hiddenness of God. I'm looking for that high theology, high philosophy, William Lane Craig, academic debate answer. But look at what Jesus actually responds here. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the father who sent me. So this seems almost like a non-answer, but it is actually revealing a pretty tremendous theological principle. This isn't up on the screen. I'm going to repeat it a couple times. I really suggest you write this down, especially you young people who are getting ready to run off to, to college and hear all the reasons why God doesn't exist. Loving obedience to God's word works to reveal the reality of God to our hearts. Let's say it again. Loving obedience to God's word works to reveal the reality of God to our hearts. It works, obedience works to bolster our faith. It works to expand our knowledge and our experience of God. It's why we are called to actively obey so that we might know God more. But 
The flip side of that statement is true as well. Disobedience to God's word works to conceal the reality of God from us. So one of my favorite, uh, favorite debates of all time is between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. And not because it was particularly spectacular. It was at Biola. And, but it, because it demonstrates this principle profoundly. William Lane Craig has, has first position, right? So he gets to get up and fire the, the, the opening salvo. And what he does is he makes an argument from nature. He points out to the cosmos and he says, look, look at the perfect fine-tuning of everything in the universe so that life would be able to exist and flourish here on, on this earth. We're the exact distance away from the sun so that we can, we can not burn up and we cannot freeze to death. We have the right mixture of, of molecules in, in our air so that we can breathe and, and, and effectively replicate life. He goes through this whole thing. Then he gets into the, hey, look at this. Look at the, the unique nature of the human body. Look at the wonder of the eye, the design of the eye. Look at the, the fantastic nature of the cell with these tiny little mechanical-esque components that, that, that cause our, our whole body to function. Look at DNA. It's, it's literally information technology written out and makes this wonderful argument. Christopher Hitchens gets up and from nature makes the argument that God doesn't exist. And he says, look out at this universe. Look at the utter chaos and randomness. Look how everything on this earth is, is trying to kill us, is trying to end our lives. It's trying to freeze us to death and starve us to death. It's trying to interrupt our, our, our genetic line. Look at these mutations that cause these, these gross deformities. Look at all this stuff. From the, same, from the same evidence, they make different arguments. And Romans 1, 18, 18 through 25, makes it shockingly clear that God has made himself plain enough in the creation and in the conscience of men, that we have an obligation to worship him. But our godlessness, which is the, added, the sinful attitude of our hearts, and our unrighteousness, which is the sinful actions of our hands, serve to suppress the truth of God and replace it with a lie. And this is why two people can stand on the same stage using the same evidence and come to two different conclusions about God. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to one who lovingly obeys, and the other is given over to the depraved desires of his heart, and he gives glory to the creation. As Craig Keener so pithily puts it, Jesus is not manifest to the world because he is revealed to those who love and obey him, not to those who don't. Our obedience brings us into a greater knowledge and experience of the love of God and the life of Christ. But we don't talk much about obedience. And the reason we're so reluctant to talk about obedience, I think, is because we don't want to rob from or pervert the reality that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works so that nobody can boast. 
But Jesus isn't talking here about the forensics or the, the, the mechanisms of salvation. He's talking about the intimacy with God, the growing and the grace and the knowledge of God that comes with salvation. He's saying that the outflow of salvation is a love for God evidenced by obedience. Jesus is about to go to the cross and unilaterally deal with the salvation issue. But here he's encouraging them with the benefits that come from that. Restored intimacy with God. Restored ability to walk in the paths of righteousness by the power of the Spirit. Restored peace. Restored joy. Even restored purpose in rejoining God in the administration of his plan for the earth. In verses 12 through 14, he says that we will do the works that he does, even greater works than he does, and that if we ask anything in his name, he will give it to us. Listen, that does not mean that because Jesus walked on water, we're going to be able to walk on lava, right? Or levitate and walk through the air. It doesn't mean that we can request a billion dollars and a Ferrari, slap a in Jesus' name on it, and we're guaranteed to get it. No, it means that as we lovingly obey Jesus, we are so transformed and caught up in the life and work of Christ that we will ask for things that are actually his will and for his glory, and he will be quick to answer those. Regarding the works, what are the greater works? Remember what Jesus said the works of God were back in John 6? He said, this is the work of God to believe in the one whom God has sent. The greater works are seeing sinful humans trusting Christ, being restored and so filled with life that they go proclaiming the good news to other sinful human beings until the gospel spreads like fire across the globe. This is the promised work of the Spirit, bringing rebels not just into submission, but into a loving relationship with their sovereign and launching them back out to bring in more rebels. And all of this is a foretaste of eternity. The abiding presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit is a promise that in glory, our dwelling will always be with God. Look with me at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Jesus is telling his disciples not to be afraid of what's coming in the next few days because this is what is coming at the end of all things. All of those anxieties I listed at the beginning of this sermon, insecurity, lack of provision, loss of relationship, death, purposelessness, on and on and on, all of those things which are the manifestations of our separation from God's loving embrace are abolished and put away forever. Because God is there. And never again will his glory depart from humanity. And never again will humanity be cast out of his presence. 
And it is to that consummate reality that Jesus is pointing towards when he tells them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me. Get up. Let us leave this place. And then Jesus stands up and walks wholeheartedly towards the coming fury of the cross. So that the world may know that the Son loves the Father. And so that we might have secure access to God both now and for eternity. So here's the question that con- questions that confront all of us today. Do you believe this? Have you looked to Christ in all his glory, the glory of, of the one and only Son from the Father, and put your faith in him? Does the Spirit of God so indwell you that even though it seems as if the world is ripping itself apart at times, your heart is comforted because in the house of your Father there is a place prepared for you? And does the love of Christ move you to radically obey God in the same way that Christ obeyed, even unto death? I'm going to have the worship team come back up. The proper application to the hearing of God's word is always to worship. It is always to rejoice in who God is and what he has done. But I want to pray for us. I want to pray for for two groups in this room. I want to pray for the beleaguered, weary, fearful believer who has been walking around with a bundle of anxiety that God has called them not to carry, has commanded them to cast before him. And I want to pray for the unbeliever, the one who has never found hope in Christ, who is plagued with the fear of the absence of God in their life. And so as I pray, will you pray for those two groups? Will you pray that that the Holy Spirit would come and move and reveal Jesus to both of them? Lord, we come before you in gratitude for your word. We come before you so grateful that you are revealing your plan before it even happens so that we might believe in you. We're so grateful that you take tragedy and injustice like the cross of Christ and you use it to to rescue the world, that you bring good from it, you bring life from it. And Lord, I pray for those who have never heard the call of your voice. I pray for those who, have, who are here, who have who've never heard the loving call of their father. I pray, God, that you would call to them and that they would respond in loving obedience to your voice, that they would reach out in faith and believe in Christ and be saved for eternity. And I pray for those who have walked long and weary roads 
who have walked through death and despair and discouragement and have collected like rocks in a backpack those anxieties. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and reveal the sufficiency of Jesus, reveal to them in a new way the good news that you have gone to prepare a place for us and that they would take all of those cares and cast them at the feet of the one who can deal with them. And pray for all of us that we would have a growing awareness of your nearness to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.